Well, David, you know, thanks for coming on the show. It's always good to uh, have you back on. Good to see you again, brother. How you doing? Ah, doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. I know you're in uh, Colombia right now, eh? Indeed. Yeah, I have an opportunity to be in Medellin, one of my favorite cities in the world. So, yeah, broadcasting live from from Medellin, Colombia. Uh, you and your today is it's good to be with you. Yeah, that's it. That's all. And you know, part of uh, this conversation today will certainly be some of that South American politics, with some interesting stuff going on, including what's happening in Brazil and some of the crossovers between you know the the claims of election fraud and, and some of what happened uh, in the U S both with, I mean, when you really think about it, like even Hillary was claiming that, you know, there was potentially some stolen election, you know, even in the, uh, the 2016. Um, but then of course in 2020, we all know the, the Trump uh, perspective as well. But before we get to some of that, um, why don't we touch a little bit on some of your like sort of political history and background and sort of frame this conversation a little bit because we're going to talk about politics and some potentially new and exciting options moving forward and definitely dive into some nuances. But I know you began, I think, I mean, you've always been interested from what I remember. I'll let you tell this story, but, um, but I know at some point you worked with Tulsi Gabbard in uh, her campaign a bit. Uh, why don't we start there? For sure. Well, you know, before Tulsi, I, I worked with uh, the Bernie Sanders campaign on mm -hmm. the ground, I'm sure in 2016, you know, when everyone gave him a 1% chance to do anything. And he had a pretty successful insurgent campaign, which built a pretty strong progressive movement around the country. And what's interesting how that ties into Tulsi, um, you know, you may remember in 2016, she actually stepped down as vice chair of the DC to call out the inequitable primary that was rigged and that actually Elizabeth Warren admitted was rigged. Donna Brazile wrote a book about it. And, you know, the foul play that occurred in the 2016 primary with Hillary Clinton and, and how she just had a stranglehold on uh, the DNC as an organization tilted the scales against Bernie Sanders. Tulsi Gabbard called that out, relinquished her chair as vice chair of the DNC and um, became probably the most high profile Bernie Sanders surrogate in 2016. Of course, Bernie wasn't successful ultimately, even though he came, even though he came close. Um, you know, maybe if it wasn't for the superdelegate debacle, he might have actually had a chance to win that primary. But, um, you know, that's water under the bus at this point. Fast forward to 2020, Tulsi Gabbard threw in her hat as a candidate for the Democratic nomination. And um, I admired her a lot, not just because of, um, I, I thought the political courage it took to step down from a prestigious position at the DNC to support Bernie Sanders, despite all the threats she got, but also, uh, you know, I, I really resonated with her on foreign policy. I resonated with her message. I thought she was somebody who was nonpartisan in the sense that uh, she was committed more to principles than political ideology. And, you know, I still believe that's the case with her. I think she's not afraid to sort of explore and journey across the political spectrum in whatever is resonant for her, whether that's progressive policies or obviously now she ha has a different uh, political take and political view, and she's going on a different journey. But in 2019, I did uh, was on the ground with her in New Hampshire. Actually, that was the most uh, successful state for her in the primary. So you know, we're we're proud of that. But um, <laughs> but, yeah, you know, I got, and then I just got to know her and her family on a personal front. I think she's just a really high quality person outside of politics. Um, so so you, you know, in terms of my my political background. You know, I'm an attorney by trade, trained at Howard University School of Law. There, I became really interested in human rights. And 
really, I'm just a concerned citizen. I'm not, I'm not really a, a high profile political operative. I get involved in the fights where I think it makes sense and where I'm passionate about it. And I think there can actually be some real change, um, you know, as opposed to just getting involved in politics for the sake of being in politics, which, uh, quite frankly, is a, I think it's an exhausting thing to do if you're, if you're not there for um, a solid reason. Uh, but it was a very interesting experience to say the least. I would say 2016 to 2020 was enlightening to me just to see um, how difficult it is to ascend in the political game, particularly on the democratic side of the equation. If you're somebody who goes against the grain of the political doctrine of the Democratic Party and actually wants to do some things to rot out the corruption within the yeah. Democratic, you will be uh, assassinated and then your character will be maligned. And it takes a lot of courage to do that. So I, I you know, I take my hat off to uh, all those candidates, not just Tulsi and Bernie, but other others who were in that fight and, you know, put it all on the line to stand up for what they believe in. Yeah. And, you know, you, you touch on this idea of corruption within the DNC, which, you know, I, I recall back in the day and we, we took so much flack for reporting on that because, you know, it was this idea that if you're exposing the, the corruption inside the DNC, um, which was on display, you know, let's be quite honest, right? It was very, very obvious um, what was going on. You suddenly became a, a, a Republican by nature. So, you know, you write about the corruption in the DNC and you know, well, you must be a conservative outlet. And I'm wondering, you know, where do you stand in your own, you know, personal perspective uh, in terms of a uh, sort of like a political philosophy or do you not classify yourself as anything? For sure. So there was a time when I, I was a registered Democrat. Um, that time has passed. I'm unaffiliated. I'm a nonpartisan. And, you know, to be honest, I think, I think upholding the duopoly, at least in the United States, is not going to be a productive process. So, you know, to me, the the important question isn't whether you're left or right or whether you're Democrat or Republican. It's do you, do you understand the rot in our institutions, the rot in the two-party system, and are you able to diagnose the duopolistic mentality that kind of puts a stranglehold, I think, on any kind of progress in our country? So, you know, for me, it's, um, it's much more about uh, principles and standing up against quite frankly a lot of powerful forces that i believe are corrupting our society corrupting our politics corrupting our institutions we have a very real oligarchy in the united states and both parties are um play a part in that and i believe both parties are complicit in that system perpetuating itself so to me it's more about um do you understand that corruption do you understand how the two-party system essentially has played the people to perpetuate this cycle of corruption for decades and decades and decades to where we have some minute disagreements for sure. And then there are some very real disagreements between the two parties. Uh, you know, you can talk about reproductive rights. I think that's a very salient difference. Um, but when it comes to foreign policy, when it comes to central banking, when it comes to the institution of corporate capture of both parties, it's, it's actually quite similar and they tend to vote with a bipartisan consensus on those big issues. So for me, it's I, I could no longer in good conscience kind of play that game of left versus right. Uh, to me, it's much more about how are we going to progress and how are we going to properly diagnose the ills in our political process. And to me, you can't do that if you're just sort of on one wing of the equation. 
Yeah. Yeah. So you're kind of saying there's a, there's a larger issue with the overall structure of politics. And, um, you know, one of those issues I think that often comes into play here is sort of this discussion of, you know, when you, it, when you, I'll say this for, as a, as a Canadian looking at, um, you know, when I talk to my American friends and so on and so forth, oftentimes what will happen is, um, the attacks on the way politics functions here is like, oh, you guys are just socialists and you're crazy and you're this and you're that. And Bernie Sanders is super dangerous because he's a socialist and this. And I find there's these isms, right? And and these assumptions that are made about whether it's the Republican Party, the Democrat Party, or, or you know, that any direction somebody is going to take is is pulling us away from this sort of free market capitalistic democracy over to this like really bad socialist frame. And, um, and there's very little nuance and understanding of what's actually going on there. Um, what's, what's your take on that when, when people kind of just throw any sort of progressive policy as, as just, you know, socialism? Yeah, you know, that's, that's become a word that almost ceases to have meaning. I'm almost like the term. <laughs> I use the term progressive as well, but even that has kind of ceased to have meaning now with in terms of the different sort of the different interpretations that people spin on it and and the socialism thing is funny to me because, you know, nowadays everyone's a socialist. Justin Trudeau's a socialist. Bernie Sanders is a socialist. Lula's a socialist. Petro's a socialist. Olaf Scholz is a socialist. And and what does that even mean, right? And I, I think what's funny is that a lot of the times when people use that term, simultaneously they enjoy some of the, th some of the things that occur from social democracy, such as Social Security, you know, Medicaid for people who are older, uh, having universal healthcare access. Like th these are ideas of social democracy that people really enjoy. And if you take that away, they get angry. But, yeah. it, and, and this has sort of been used, I think, just to pit people against each other. And essentially mm -hmm. what, what that does is that benefits the establishment because the establishment doesn't want people to have more access to economic opportunity, more access to healthcare, more access to clean water, and these things can only come about if there's a stronger social democracy within our societies that says, hey, you know, we, we need to hold institutions and our politicians accountable to make sure that they're bettering our lives. So there is a real thing is communism, right? I mean, we have, there have been communists throughout history, but Bernie Sanders is not one of those people. And yeah. um, so it, it's, I'm always curious when people say that, what exactly do you mean by that term? Like what, what about him? Is socialist because he even Bernie Sanders, who is, um, you know, a social democrat, is not going to take apart free enterprise. Is not does not want to take away the free market. You know, it's more of a Nordic model where they have a free market, they have a capitalistic society, but they have a social democratic safety net to where people get something from their investment into the in, into yeah. the social contract. Right as as a as a citizen of this country. I buy in to the social contract, meaning X amount of my income goes towards services that later I benefit from, whether that's healthcare, whether that's retirement, pension, whether it's social security. And if you want to just take that away and have the Wild West, well, you have something similar to how the United States functions today, where all that money is funded towards war, all that money is funded towards oligarchy and corporate capture. That is actually socialism for the corporations. So. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting what we mean by that. And, and and of course, these become very charged terms that almost cease to have meaning if we're not thinking critically about what we're talking about. Yeah. And I think even within this this discussion, just on its own, there's there's so much um, lack of understanding, lack of nuance, lack of really just 
notif- like taking note of the complexity that is our system and how it actually functions. We've become so surface level in our understanding for the most part. Uh, and when you throw terms around and almost like insults around, and then you ask people, okay, those terms, those insults, what do you mean by that? What is the actual, what is the mechanism behind what you're saying? And oftentimes it, it can't really be explained or expanded upon. And, and I did a bit of an experiment on this actually on my Instagram where I, uh, I had posted a, um, a video of Justin Trudeau talking about vaccine mandates recently. And, uh, and I said, well, you know, instead of just, um, saying he's an idiot and name calling this dude, like, can you explain in facts why his perspective here, um, is maybe wrong or should be, should be questioned or critiqued? Like what, what facts would you throw at critiquing this? And, uh, there was something like 200 and something comments and maybe like 1%, if not half a percent of people actually had a fact. (laughs) Right. So it's like, we know, we know, we know what to say. We know how to name call. We know how to, how to say bad things. We know how to call somebody a socialist. We know how to call somebody a communist, but we don't actually know why or what it means. And, uh, and I think that's fascinating that, that, that the same populace is voting. You know, the same populace who doesn't necessarily understand an issue is also voting on things. And and so it becomes this question of, you know, are we just sort of stuck in fighting against each other and not necessarily voting for what is the best thing, but more so voting for, I don't want the other guy to win. So I'm going to vote for my team. You know, what's your take on that? Right. Yeah. And it's kind of like the boy who cried wolf too, because if everyone's a communist, if everyone's, you know, um, Lenin, or if everyone's Hugo Chavez, then when the real thing actually emerges onto the scene, you won't be able to differentiate between a Bernie Sanders and an actual communist dictator. Uh, Really, you know, if you're, if you paint every conservative or right-leaning person as a fascist, when a real fascist comes onto the scene, how are you going to be able to differentiate between what you're calling a crypto fascist or just a fascist and an actual fascist was now looking to put a stranglehold and an authoritarian stranglehold on society. I think the Justin Trudeau thing is interesting because, you know, while I disagree with his handling of the pandemic, I I wouldn't consider him a fascist authoritarian dictator. I mean, there's still, you know, democracy in in Canada. And now I think Justin Trudeau is out of touch with the people of his country and and because of his background. And I think because of sort of his elitist posturing doesn't, really is not able to resonate with the concerns of the people on the ground, whether, whether that's their concern about losing their livelihood because of um, a draconian vaccine mandate and sort of trivializing that concern that people have, which I think is a very legitimate concern. Uh, that, that is certainly a flaw of his, of his tenure. But you know, to say that he's just an abject communist or socialist, I think it's just, again, not being critical. It's just kind of being lazy and throwing, throwing insults out there, hoping it sticks and airing a grievance that isn't really based on reality. Yeah. So uh, a lot of people would say, probably including myself, that, you know, some of the way he conducted himself is authoritarian from the standpoint of, you know, uh, science don't matter. uh, Facts doesn't matter. Um, It's more so, you know, here's here's the policy. Here's what I'm going to do. And uh, if you don't like it, too bad. Right. This is some of what what he did. but what would you say then would be 
what's the line he would have to cross to be considered a, an authoritarian? Like, so he, he took authoritarian actions, right? Um, but what would the line be that he would have to cross? Well, I think to me, there would have to be a clear line that the policies he's instituting are so unpopular that he's circumventing the will of the people. But correct me if I'm wrong here, Joe, because this is, this is your country and you know a lot more mm-hmm. than I do. But from my understanding of what I've seen, it seemed like maybe a slight majority, but still a majority of Canadians approved of how he was handling the pandemic and actually, I think we're more or less in support of his policies. Am I correct in that or is that not correct? I think, I think depending on where you looked in terms of polling, I think that would probably be the case. Um, and I also think this brings in that complex question and this is where I think these issues become complicated, but, um, you know, at what point in the pandemic would people have said that? Right. And at the same time, what information were they going off of that produced that perspective? Right. So I think the argument, if I'm hearing you correctly, that you're making is um, people at some point in the pandemic, maybe around the Freedom Convoy or something like that, um, would have approved with the way he's handling it. And therefore, he wasn't necessarily authoritarian because he wasn't going beyond the will of the majority of those people. Is that essentially what you're saying? Well, correct. Because an authoritarian doesn't care about the will people and doesn't allow for open debate in parliament, for example, or to any questioning of policy. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not hip to all the nuances of your system, but from, from my understanding, there was open debate. There was, um, in large part, public support of his policies. Now, I think you make a, a very interesting point in terms of if he did have a majority of support in that, was it uh, coerced support? Was it manipulated support? Or was it actually uh, independent, free-thinking people who came to that conclusion? I think that's that's a good question. But to me, if you're looking at authoritarianism, again, that's a, that's a very specific term that signifies a, a specific way of, of holding power. And that circumvents the will of the people to where what, what the people want or the people voicing their grievances doesn't matter at all. Now, I think you could make the argument that people who come from the trucker convoy and, and, and people who are processing there, rightfully so. And again, criticism I have is last I heard him critique that saying, oh, well, they didn't have a permit. Well, if, if you're if you yeah. <laughs> about open democracy and freedom of expression, freedom, you know, f- freedom of protest, um, then whether or not somebody has a permit or not is just a technocratic detail that shouldn't get in the way of people's yeah. right to, to protest. But you know, I, I, I do think that I will say this, I think, in large part, a lot of the zero COVID policies around the world in Canada and, and the United States have been authoritarian, have been a gross overreach of government policy to where they are now making policy not really based necessarily on scientific observations, but based on what they think is best for other people. And that becomes a very dangerous proposition, particularly when it's not uh, when those policy consider considerations put people at a distinct disadvantage because, you know, incidentally, most of those people who make those policy positions can just sit at home on their laptop. They don't have to go out into the world. They don't have to engage in a day-to-day economy. Their livelihoods are not at stake. So when you have sort of that elitist mentality that brings forth that policy, I do think that trends towards authoritarianism and it should be called out. Yeah. And I know that, uh, you know, you're, I think you're talking about one of the clips where he's kind of saying, you know, I I don't think people should protest in order to 
force the hand of the government was um, I'm paraphrasing here, but he was he was essentially said, stating this was during the Emergencies Act uh, inquiry uh, had to have been probably maybe three or four days prior to this recording. Um, he was essentially saying he didn't want to set a precedent by meeting with people that if you come and occupy. So this is what he, how he was trying to clear up his words. He was trying to say, if you if you come and occupy a place um, and you think that is going to grant you a meeting with me, well, this is where I kind of draw the line. And this is where, this is where I'm very interested in this, um, in really breaking this down, like what happened in Canada, because, you know, he's, he's essentially stating that it's like, imagine you had no issue, right? And then the issue just sort of stems up over one day. And the next thing you know, on day two, people are going and occupying, um, you know, the, the land around parliament so that they could get a meeting. So you go from zero issue to give me a meeting. I'm occupying. I'm not leaving until you give me a meeting. You know, that's one scenario, but this was something that was been talked about for months and this was built up. And no matter what people had said, no matter what people were trying to have in terms of their voices heard, it was like, you don't exist. And it came to a point where their only option was to occupy Right. And then now he's saying, well, I, I don't want to set a precedent by meeting with people who are occupying. So at what, at what point can people be heard? Right. And this is kind of what I'm, I'm trying to understand in, in sort of his perspective of not setting a precedent. But w what are your thoughts on, on that whole idea of, you know, listening to people, um, and who are, who are saying, you know what, I need to be heard and we have to do something extreme to do so. Cause we're not being heard. Like, you know, What's your take on that and his his reach of saying just, yeah, you know what, I didn't want to set a precedent? I think it's just a failure of good governance, because if, if you become president or you become prime minister of a country, you're prime minister for everyone, for all Canadians, right? So even those who you may vehemently disagree with. And this this sort of reminds me of drawing a parallel of sort of failed diplomatic efforts around the world where a country will say, I'm not going to meet with X leader no matter what. Like, they're... I'm not going to meet with them unless a hundred of the conditions are met, but that's not how we reach across the aisle and actually come to some kind of consensus and agreement. The first step to that is to show mutual respect to say, okay, I disagree with you, but I'm going to sit down, hear you out um, and give you the dignity to have that conversation. Because in my view, he actually inflamed the protest by not doing that. He made the situation worse. And if your goal, yeah. your goal is social harmony and, to bring everyone into a situation where all Canadians are heard and respected, he's achieving the exact opposite because of sort of this stubborn mentality of I'm not going to sit down with them to set a precedent. Well, sorry, but that, that's your job. Your job as prime minister is to sit down with constituents, even constituents who you disagree with, to try to come to a resolution of this process, a diplomatic resolution. And I think, you know, I don't know this for a fact, but I would imagine that the trucker convoy protests probably doubled down and maybe even tripled down because of his inability and his lack of willingness to, to sit down with them in a dignified manner and respect them as human beings and as Canadians. Yeah, I would say that, uh, you know, having spoken to some of the, the people that were sort of organizing during that time and, and hearing from them what they were really asking for and what it meant. It was kind of this feeling of 
this is all we're asking for. And this guy won't even grant us this. Instead, it's like, it's continual assault. It's continual, uh, like what I mean by assault, like insults, like, and, and, and the information war and, um, creating, you know, bunk in the media, uh, to try and make this go away. And what's interesting about this is, is the political process would state that, uh, if you had an issue with vaccine mandates, you'd, you'd write your MP, right. And you'd say, Hey, here's, here's my issue. Go take this to parliament and let's talk about this. And so that, you know, uh, Trudeau would listen. And th from what I heard talking to a lot of different people who wrote their MP, it's like most of them never got responses. Right. And then of course, if you're on the liberal side and here's the problem, if you're on the liberal side or the NDP side, they're never going to bring that up. Oh, thousands of my constituents are concerned about vaccine mandates. Well, unless you were on the conservative side, nobody was going to talk about that, right? So, so here's this this odd question of like, Trudeau is is trying to say, within the system, the way it works, I can't grant precedent to this to these groups of people because that's not how the system works. But then all the people who use the system and wrote their MPs and and we're, we're playing within a system that can't help them anyway. Right, because of the very nature and the design of it, and the division, and and well, I'm not going to you know risk my political career. So now those people aren't heard. So now they're going. Well, my only way is to circumvent the system, right? And I think this is where we get into these like really, really, we're reaching this point. I think in in general societal evolution, where people are realizing that societies just don't they don't work. They just don't function properly, and this is producing issues all over the place. Yeah, and um. I'm just wondering if it's like, without bringing that into the fold, it's easy to frame issues. Like it's easy to look at a piece of the issue and say, well, yeah, you know what? Um, you can't set a precedent by meeting with these people. It's like, yeah, that's a piece to the issue, but these people tried to use the system and it didn't work. Right. So what else would they have to do? Yeah. And that's an excellent point, Joe. And I, I think that this, this is where we have to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, am I approaching this in good faith? You know, that Justin yeah. has to ask that question to himself. But I think also the truckers do too in, in this respect that, you know, my understanding was that some there were some bad actors in the trucker convoy who were trying to prevent basic food and medicine supplies to get to communities that needed them. To me, you have to look in, in the mirror and say, okay, is this the best way for me to go about this? Because you have to, if you, you want to come down and sit with Trudeau and Trudeau wants to sit with the truckers, both of them are going to have to give a little bit and say, hey, let's try to come in good faith. Because, you know, we, in a negotiation, usually the sign, the hallmarks of a good negotiation is that both sides feel like they're not getting everything they want. You know, even both sides feel like they're not getting a good deal because you're negotiating and you're giving something to get something. So I think in the US, this is where this exemplifies sort of the divide we have, meaning both sides don't seem to want to act in good faith to sit down and try to come to a resolution on anything. They'd rather just deviate, go to their own respective corners, throw insults and intensify the extremism on both sides. So, you know, I, I would challenge in, in that particular um, conflict. I don't think either side was acting in the best, in the best faith that they could to bring forth a resolution. I think there was a lot of stubbornness. I will say this though, Justin Trudeau is the prime minister. He's, he's the one in the position of power. So the onus is on him yeah. to facilitate the environment where there is diplomacy, where there are people who feel like they're heard and respected and that their rights are respected. And if he's not doing that, then he's his job as prime minister. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting question looking at, you know, where some of the truckers acting in bad faith and, you know, 
That's a, that's a tough one. And it's a tough one from the standpoint of two, like there's no way you can know the, um, the intentions per se, or the, the faith per se of thousands of, of truckers. Um, cause I would say there was probably thousands of truckers that were involved. And there was of course, tens of thousands of people who came to support. Um, were there some truckers that were, you know, rough around the edges per se, for sure. Were they doing their best? I think so. Were there some that, um, you know, Pat King comes to mind where I think I don't, I don't, I, again, people might hate me for saying this, but, you know, really paying attention to Pat King and, um, tracking him over the years and, and debunking the nonsense that he has put out so many times. Do I think he's approaching things in good faith? No. And people would, would destroy me for saying that, but, I don't think he is, he is necessarily approaching in good faith. And I, and I think it's, it's actors like that, that actually distract from the overall, um, mission and that make it for the media to take them down. But here, as I say that I go to myself, gosh, like is Pat King just doing his best? You know, does he, does he think he's actually doing it? Cause he might be right. And, and so who am I to say that? But at the same time, it's like, this is what's hard about, about these things is it's like, we almost require to some extent this cultural enlightenment of having more people within our culture know how to approach and strategize a situation. But you're asking people to do that while we're also in this very tight and difficult system where we're working constantly and we may not have the time or we may not have the ability to educate ourselves in a way that uplifts the way we see the world and approach the world. And yet, if we don't do that, it's almost impossible to navigate and, you know, integrate with our systems in a meaningful way. So it just feels like there's this complex conundrum of like, can people, do people have the, the knowledge to come at it from a good faith point of view, or do they already think they are, you know? hundred percent. And I, I get, Jill, the, the point I'm trying to make here is, you know, if you, if you draw a parallel to what happened with Tulsi Gabbard, because we spoke about her earlier, think of the way. Yeah. Being the Democratic establishment treated her, treated Bernie Sanders, treated other people who deviated from basically the norms of the Democratic establishment. They didn't just say, hey, you know, we have a fundamental disagreement. Let's have a debate. They smeared her as a, you know, Russian asset, basically as a, as a, <laughs> which by the way, is a penalty of execution. I mean, basically, you know, they, they went through all of the bad faith exercises to ostracize somebody. And what did that result in? I actually think it contributed to where you see Tulsi today, to where she may be just as focused in exacting revenge on the Democratic Party as she is and actually trying to engage in good faith politics and, and holding true to her principles because she has obviously gone on to a side where she's endorsed people like Don Bulldog and Carrie Lake, who are actually promoting a lot of authoritarianism and, th and are promoting a lot of policies that really contradict the DNA of who Tulsi was as a Congresswoman and her record throughout her tenure. If you look at her voting record, if you look at her platform when she ran for president, you know, these people do not stand for any of that. So I think a lot of that is, yeah. is her, understandably so, feeling that she was so ostracized and, and treated so poorly and unfairly that now it's 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 a little bit about revenge, and that creates sort of this cycle of perpetuation of bad faith. When where if you would just treat people in good faith and treat people fairly, I think we would have a much more harmonious system. So to me, it's a it's sort of an endless cycle when when people act in bad faith, particularly in people people who are in positions of power.
Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I feel what you're saying. I think basically the, the clarity there would be that really the people in positions of power have to be committing to acting in good faith, not just necessarily protecting whatever it is that, that they're there for. And the citizenry are the citizenry. You're, you're there to be, you know, to some extent, the, the one that has the capacity to come in good faith, no matter what, um, based on your position and you have the responsibility to do so. Uh, and that's kind of what you're saying is, is they, sh they should be setting the tone from the get go. hundred percent. And, 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 you know, so, and what I mean, and, and to further just drive that point home, you have a woman who, um, you know, served in, in the U S army, right. Had, still is serving on active duty. Um, it's one of the few people who ran for president who actually was a veteran and risked her life for a country, but on the same token, because you disagree with her politically, you're painting her as a traitor and Russian asset. Just because she meets diplomatically with somebody like Assad, now all of a sudden she is a Benedict Arnold and the biggest traitor to the country we've ever seen. What, nobody can look at that objectively and say, yeah, they're acting in good faith, right? It, it's, clearly, yeah. it's clearly a way to manipulate and try to um, ostracize somebody and manipulate their perception to the public. And they were very effective at that. There, were, there was a lot of hatred aimed at Tulsi Gabbard because of... Hillary Clinton and other people who perpetuated this myth that she was somehow a traitor to her country because she spoke against the foreign policy establishment. And when you do that, yeah. you're creating enemies, you're not creating harmony. And I think, you know, that example is, is probably told over um, many times in various countries, including Canada. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's continue that. Cause a lot of that, what you're talking about there where, you know, yeah, it's hilarious when you really think about this. You, you have you have politicians talking about fake news on social media and how social media has become this place where um, a bad idea can spread really quickly. Yet they do the same thing, right? They'll they'll design statements, they'll design tweets, they'll design you know news uh, pieces to basically spread a campaign inducing or, or campaign supporting or campaign killing uh, sentiment out into the public and then they'll use social media knowing that the public is not really going to take the time to read past the headline on social media and to read past the you know 100 character tweets that people are putting out and so then they can shape public opinion around something that people aren't looking deeply into now, that's obviously a huge issue we've talked about on the podcast before people who are listening go check out some of the earlier episodes um, that talk about that but this leads into this this idea of let's talk about brazil a bit and what Americans are seeing, and I'm not just saying Americans, let's, uh, what I mean by that is United, United people from the United States of America, but in, in this whole Americas, the continent, right? Um, you have people in Brazil, outside Brazil, all these things commenting on what's happening in Brazil. And it seems a bit of a redo of what happened in the United States with the 2020 election and Trump claiming and not wanting to concede the election and uh, claiming election fraud, which, I, you know, again, I think these are reasonable questions, but the way in which they're talked about are often not in depth and nuanced. Um, what's your take on what's going on in, in Brazil? Let's, let's sort of start there. Like maybe uh, give the, uh, the listeners a bit of a, of your perspective of some of the, the baseline facts and, and the way you're interpreting it. Just a quick moment before we get back to our conversation. If you want to support this podcast and all the work we do here at the Pulse and Collective Evolution, 
Consider becoming a member of our Explorer Lounge. As a member, you get access to exclusive video content. You can watch all of these episodes ad-free, and you get access to our private social network where you can discuss and learn about many topics with a like-minded community of changemakers. It's truly an incredible place to be, not just for the benefits that you get, but you're directly supporting our dedicated team here at Collective Evolution and The Pulse. Visit explorelounge.one, that's .one, to learn more. All right, let's get back to the show. For sure. It was a fascinating election, first of all. Uh, Lula versus Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro obviously was the incumbent who won in 2016. Lula has actually served a couple of terms and was actually imprisoned, um, really promoted by Bolsonaro and, and a lot of his acolytes uh, painted Lula as this traitor to his country and said he was corrupt, threw him in prison. He was later exonerated on all charges because, you know, they found out there was a lack of due process and insufficient evidence to uh, convict him. So his conviction was overruled, which is, you know, a very dangerous precedent to set. You know, when we talk about imprisoning political rivals, for example, and there's been a lot of that discussion, uh, you know, Trump has, is somebody who I, I think if he was empowered and had the authoritarian ability to do that, he would totally imprison his rivals. And why that's so dangerous yeah. is because if you're doing that, not based on the evidence, you're doing that based on, I don't like this person because they're my political rival, then you're going to see society devolve into a state where institutions are going to rot out. Nobody's going to have faith and trust in the system. Quality of life is going to plummet. And any veneer of democracy is going to be completely gone. So it was a very close election in Brazil. Lula won a very slight victory. And, you know, and not all that dissimilar to what took place in the United States. Bolsonaro now has officially contested those results and is asking the results to be overturned. There was a large protest in Brazil um, in the aftermath of the election. And what a lot of people felt could have, you know, come to a dangerous situation. They didn't have a January 6th situation, but it was, um, there was a lot of civil unrest. Now, what's interesting about this is Bolsonaro um, is being advised by a lot of the same people who advised Trump. Now, whether, whether you like Trump or, and Bolsonaro or not, you have to find the humor and the irony of them calling foul here when they won the previous election. So to me, it's, it, if, you, if you feel like the election was rigged here, what makes you think your election wasn't rigged when you won? Because essentially it was the same system that elected you. So, I, you know, I always ask people to diagnose that problem and look at it from that perspective, because if you're only crying foul when you lose and you're not interested in election integrity across the board, regardless of the outcome, then it, it, it looks like spilled milk, right? It looks like crying over spilled milk that you're only concerned if the results don't go in your favor. And yeah. that is very dangerous to the institutions. Now, what's interesting about Lula is that a lot of people were painting him as the socialist and this person who was going to um, create all of these fissures in society and take away people's rights, take away people's uh, mobility and, and, and the right to prosperity. But if you look at Lula's track record, he actually presided over the largest economic growth in, in Brazil in the past 30, 40 years. Uh, during his first term, um, that was the ascendancy of the BRIC, of the, of the BRIC nations who were developing nations who became, came onto the scene, Brazil, Russia, India, China, who became prominent economies. So you can't be a socialist who is against free market capitalism and also preside over the largest economic growth in, in the modern history of your country. But those things do not that you know, those things do not jive together. And what's also interesting is that 
Lula's vice president, the person his running mate in this election, was, is a center-right economist, a very respected economist, was a free market uh, economist. This would be if like Barack Obama chose Mitt Romney as his running mate, pretty much. So this would this would so this is not somebody who's coming in to grab socialist power and and you know basically leverage the the power of the state against people. Um, you know, during his previous tenure, they they experienced the largest increase in in the middle class. More people were elevated out of poverty into the middle class to participate in the economy than ever before. So, and and, and you saw the erosion of that economy under Bolsonaro. Also, you saw the erosion of environmental policies that really threaten the Amazon. So, I, I always ask people if you're demonizing somebody like Lula, how do you give Bolsonaro a pass for a lot of for a lot of the rot of the institutions and not caring about the everyday lives of people or the Amazon, but you demonize somebody like Lula, who it, it who also, by the way, is is calling for accountability uh, on the side of Ukraine to actually come to the table and be diplomatic to bring forth a resolution to the Russia-Ukraine conflict. That's not something that a World Economic Forum puppet would do, right? So the I think the, this is yet another example where we have to dive a little bit deeper and think a little bit more critically and look at some of the facts on the ground before we're so quick to say, oh, I like Bolsonaro, so Lula must be the devil, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, so let's let's wheel back for a second. I mean, the the corruption that that Lula was accused of. Now, I know, for example, in the political process, you can, you know, you can kind of find a loophole sometimes or sorry, uh, the legal process, you can sometimes find a loophole and sort of get things thrown out. Or maybe, you know, you have some powerful friends, but, um, you know, were there good uh, accusations against the corruption that that he was involved in while he was in power? There were, yes. However, if you're going to find that, you could essentially find that in every prominent politician in Latin America, which has been riddled with corruption. So it was sort of this unacceptable yeah. standard. And we know this because of the excellent journalism of Glenn Greenwald, who actually, I think, was responsible, in large part responsible for the exoneration of Lula because of his journalism sort of exposing the lack of due process and the lack of constitutionality in terms of how they convicted Lula, which actually led to the the overruling of his conviction. So yes, there was something there, but if there was something there, then you could essentially make that case, I guess, almost every politician in Latin America. So it's, it was a very Or in the world in general. <laughs> What's that? Or in the world in general. Right. <laughs> the difference between, and again, this is the danger in sort of demonizing your political opponent and saying, instead of sort of engaging in fair debate, and saying, hey, let's, you know, let's just pit our ideas against each other and may the best man win. It's no, I don't want fair competition. I want this person in prison and taking them out of the equation so they can't be a rival. And that, that's a, right. beyond a dangerous precedent. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, you know, the, like we, I remember when we were covering, covering Trump back in the day and, and the Hillary and the, that whole election, which, which I still am fascinated by just the nature of what Trump represented and what he was and, and the cultural moment and, and all these sorts of things. But, you know, it was like, you could see there was, this guy's not a clean guy, you know, coming in being, uh, you, you know, the, a person who's been a good actor his entire life in terms of comparing his actions to the average person. He's obviously committed crimes to some extent, but what I found fascinating was to, you know, staunch, uh, Trump supporters, he was, you know, Jesus. And to the, you know, Democrats, he was the devil. And, but then 
you know, Hillary, who also whose rap sheet is is puke worthy, um, you know, sh she's the, Jesus to Democrats and Trump is is, you know, say, or, sorry, and to Republicans, she's she's Satan. And I, I just I find it fascinating that there's there's no attempt when we're on these political sides to really notice you know, what you were saying pretty much this whole podcast, which is this idea that, that the systems themselves are so wrought with corruption that they're just everywhere. And this, this duopoly, this, this system where you're always going to have people utilizing whatever they can to take out their opponent. Like, how is this a healthy thing for society? Like how it, like, it just feels like citizens are stuck in the middle of what is a nonsensical situation. And we're, we're caught you know, just arguing about surface level stuff without looking at the deeper meta crisis that's there. Um, so this sort of leads to the election, or sorry, this this question of, um, you know, election rigging. I'm assuming you believe it's it's entirely possible, correct? Hundred percent. I mean, I, I think that. Um, well, first of all, there have been elections that have been rigged throughout the throughout the world. You know, there have been yeah. there's been foul play in elections. Uh, you know, th this is documented. This is not a conspiracy. This is just fact. Now, whether the 2020 election in, in the United States, uh, you know, whether that was rigged or not, I I think that there's been enough of a good faith look at the evidence to say that it wasn't in any large way. Um, there have been a myriad of lawsuits that have been filed. There's been a lot of forensic examination into it. I don't see any evidence that that election was rigged. Actually, I see more evidence that Trump was actually trying to rig it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I didn't hear that one. You know, if you look at, um, if you look at basically him trying to intimidate Republicans in Georgia to find, you know, 10,000 votes, say, I need you just to find 10,000 votes, do whatever you have to do to get it. That's not somebody who cares about election integrity. So, mm -hmm. um, but is it possible, you know, you know, is there a rigging of elections that is taking place to the right now as we speak. Yes, there are attempts to rig elections. Um, there are attempts to um, manipulate outcomes 100%. I actually think one of the clearest cases of that was the Democratic primary um, in 2020. If you look at the Iowa caucus, the debacle that happened there with this app that was used and how the results were just inconsistent with what the findings were when they actually came to verify later and Actually, the head of the Democratic Party there had to uh, resign because of how he administrated over that debacle. I think there are instances like that, particularly in primaries, where political parties feel like they're essentially entitled to nominate the person that they want to nominate, regardless of what the people say. That is where we don't have a pure, direct democracy, and people need to understand that. So, yes, uh, you know, election integrity is a huge issue. But I do not think the 2020 election was, you know, overturned and 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 Biden was installed somehow because they didn't want Trump to win. I think I think if anything, if there was going to be a rigged election, it would have been for somebody like Hillary Clinton in 2016. So I, I, I don't buy I don't buy that um, Trump was um, that that election was rigged and that any of his claims are valid. With regards to the 2020 election, let's say. Um... I, I'm assuming you're familiar with uh, Dinesh D'Souza's 2,000 Mules and that whole claim. And I think I think in that, um, and, and I got to say off the top, like as a 
when I put on my journalist hat here, um, this is not a topic that I've personally spent a ton of time digging apart in terms of election fraud. It's just not where my focus has been. So I'm not like a huge expert in it. Um, however, like looking at some of what, what he had put forth, it seemed like there was issues with, with mail-in ballots and that whole thing. And they, they claimed to have had all this uh, video evidence of people returning over and over with these like ballots and, and this sort of stuff. And it, it kind of seemed like there was evidence there of election fraud in their perspective. And they claimed that they had a whole bunch more evidence. Um, have you seen this? I, I'm, I'm familiar with it, yes. And I'm also familiar with some of the claims in Arizona. I, I do remember there was something proven where there was basically a ghost ballot that was handed in and counted for somebody who didn't even exist. Um, however, and that actually prompted an investigation, but when they investigated it and they looked at it clo more closely um, and they did a forensic analysis, it actually came back that Biden had more votes than they thought, not less in that state. So I yeah. think there are instances like that where there's evidence of an isolated incidence of some type of corruption or bad faith. And by the way, those people get prosecuted who who handed in those fake ballots. Is it enough to overturn? Is it enough to say that, you know, because of this situation here, maybe there's a dozen situations of voter impropriety that that means the entire election is now invalid? That's where I don't I don't think it, there's strong evidence to show that. And when it comes to D'Souza, I mean, I I wouldn't consider him a good faith actor in this. Um, and I think that you have to look at the evidence itself. And I, what I hear from him and a lot of other people is that, oh, we have the evidence and we have more evidence. Well, bring, where's yeah. the evidence? Like submit, submit all yeah. the evidence you have because there are enough people who care about this. And certainly there's incentive amongst a lot of conservative Republicans in Republican states, by the way, like Arizona, who wanted to find corruption. They wanted to find impropriety, but when they looked at it, they couldn't. So my question to that is, well, if you have more evidence and and you're saying that there's more evidence that you haven't presented yet why what is stopping you from presenting it put everything on the table yeah. because we shouldn't because one thing we shouldn't do is discount claims if somebody is claiming there's election fraud and they have evidence of it they shouldn't be dismissed it should be looked at and people should not think that there can be no credence or absolutely no um no evidence whatsoever that there's fraud if there is evidence of fraud that should open up a larger investigation but it has in a couple of these states. And what I've seen is through that process, it actually comes out that there was nothing there that would overthrow or have a, have Trump gain like 30,000 votes in a state where he needed, you know, 30,000 votes to change the outcome. Um, you know, yeah. to me, it's just a lot of crying over spilled milk. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I think too, cause then people could turn around and say, which again, I, <laughs> maybe where my perspective is people could turn around and say, well, those investigations were maybe not, um, overly trustworthy. Right. And this kind of, I think shows the the lack of, uh, trust people have in the institutions in general, which I do think they've arrived at that lack of trust of institutions in general, based on, you know, maybe partly evidence and partly, uh, ideas that are not necessarily well backed up, but that's spread. Um, so I, I think there is that there, but you know, I, I, I always thought when it came to election rigging, it, you know, that the way to do it would be with the, with the machines, not necessarily, um, you know, mail-in ballots, like maybe, maybe that is the, the way. Um, but for me, I always thought that it would be much easier to do it through voting machines. And I remember doing a, a sort of an in-depth sort of look at, um, 
where voting machines existed around the United States and in what counties and different areas. And there was large enough population centers that went based on machines versus other population centers in the same state that went off of like paper ballots, for example. And there was always enough where you could sort of swing a close election just through the machines. And um, I thought that was interesting. I think I made a video on that. I believe it's on the pulse, but it might actually have been before that. I can't remember. But um, I thought that was interesting because it, it, to me, that's like the easiest way to hide it. And I'm wondering, like, have you heard in in your journey of, of exploring some of this election fraud stuff, have people been able to, to investigate the machines at all? So not in the United States, but but I am aware um, there was an election in Mexico sort of at the advent of technology when voting machines first came into existence, where it was proven that there was election fraud and manipulation of the voting machines there. Now, that was some time ago. And in the United States, I don't think there's been... Um, a deep enough dive to look into these machines. Now, one way, of course, to verify the results of these machines is to have backup paper ballots. There have been some politicians who have pushed for this because that would solve a lot of the problems and solve a lot of the questions around the voting machines um, if you had back backup paper ballots to verify, which I think would be worthwhile. But you know, it, it is interesting that a lot of our election systems in the United States are pretty antiquated. I mean, it still takes weeks in some instances to get results back, where in a lot of developers, yeah. they, they actually have much more efficient and streamlined ways of, of accounting for elections than we do. And I think now there is so much attention around election fraud that maybe people are being so careful that um, they're going through that process. And, and don't get me wrong, it's better to be late and accurate than to be quick and inaccurate when you're, when you're counting votes. Um, but the concern mm -hmm. about election fraud doesn't just come from Trumpians, right? I mean, as you out, Hillary yeah. Clinton called into question the results of the 2016 election. Stacey Abrams uh, did not accept the results immediately when she lost their, the first governor race in Georgia. So this is something where there's been distrust across the system and across the political spectrum to the point where there should be, I think, more active efforts to enhance election integrity and build the trust, which clearly is lost. I mean, there's, there's a lot of loss and the institutions yeah. across the board. Yeah, and, and what I find when people bring up the the loss of trust in institutions and when they when they talk about election fraud, I was just reading an article this morning um, at, in the Guardian, and it was it was this piece that was just smearing the crap out of this Graham Hancock uh, uh, ancient apocalypse that that was on Netflix. It's just basically saying it's the most dangerous show on on Netflix. And uh, you're reading through the the arguments of this this author, and you're like, man, this is you know, <laughs> these aren't the greatest arguments. But they basically, if you were to boil it down they were saying that um you know questioning the, the the creation of the pyramids and doing all these sorts of things um what's next uh questioning whether election fraud is real questioning whether 911 was an inside job right that that was basically the frame of the article is like you know questioning the who built the pyramids is a gateway drug to you know talking about rigged elections and talking about um you know 911 being an inside job and what i found fascinating about this was it's like a no-no. You you're insulting democracy in the United States by questioning whether there's election fraud, even though there's an entire infrastructure and an entire incentive system for anybody to do this. Like everything is there to be able to rig an election. Why would it be silly for people to question that? Like it makes no sense to me. Wouldn't it make more sense that if people were questioning election fraud instead of 
telling them they're a crazy conspiracy nut, wouldn't it make more sense to just say, okay, let's fix our silly election systems because that's what they are such that it's impossible for them to be rigged and remove as best we can the incentive to even rig an election, right? Wouldn't that be a more reasonable solution than just calling people names? Yeah. you know, and this is where I'm always astonished at the lack of intellectual curiosity from, from a lot of media that doesn't actually care to investigate whether something is true or not. They're just quick to dismiss something reflexively because they, this presumptive yeah. legitimacy to institutions and to power as if, you know, as if, as if these institutions are infallible and have never done anything wrong. I mean, that's always my, I'm always curious. Because, listen, I, I do think that there is a tendency to over-exaggerate the conspiracies in our world, particularly today. But there's also a tendency to, to under-exaggerate and to say that nothing is ever a conspiracy. And I'm always questioning these people. I'm like, I'm like, really? Like, you look at the world and, and you don't see any conspiracy? Like, not even one? Like, everything is just above the yeah. board and everyone's just acting benevolently. This is sort of this naivete, I think, approach that um, lacks intellectual curiosity, critical thinking. And it, it's just it's just fascinating it's almost it's almost sophomoric to me to where you would um it's like you're believing in santa claus or something right like like you're not even you're not even really curious enough to to investigate this and and to answer somebody's question and to say as you suggested yeah let's look into this you know why don't we look into whether there's any veracity to these claims as opposed to saying how dare you even ask that question of course why would you even bother to have the curiosity to question something that you know, clearly has holes in the official story. And, you know, the reason why I think it's important to look at the political process is not just a complete failed endeavor, meaning something that we should never engage in in any scenario, is one, the world needs us. The world needs us to solve some big problems right now. And one of those problems is the collapse of our environment, the collapse of our ecosystem and biodiversity. And one thing that's encouraging here in Colombia and South America in general is there is a coalition being built to come to the rescue of the Amazon forest. And with the new administration of Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez in Colombia, with Lula now in Brazil, with some of the leaders in South America who are for the, for the first time, a consensus across the board in South America is going to do something about this. That is encouraging. That's something we could look at and say, okay, there's reason for optimism there. And I think we have a tendency to be doom and gloom, to think that there's nothing that can ever good nothing good can ever come from politics or nothing good can ever come from spirituality or religion or nothing good can ever come from all of these institutions, which should be here to leverage and which should be here to rally support for the planet and to improve the lives of of our people and create more sustainable food systems, create more freedom, more liberty, more opportunity for everybody. So if we abandon that process, then we just leave it to the bad actors to take control of it and take advantage of it. Um, that's not to say we should be naive and thinking that our institutions are so rock solid that you know they're, they're, we don't need any accounting of election fraud or we don't need to look into corruption. We don't need to look into potential false flags. We have to look into all this with a sober mind. But if the re- end result is that we we become abandoned and now we become more vulnerable to sensationalistic mindsets and sort of fantasy paradigms, then we're essentially opting out. We're saying, I'd rather be in this fantasy timeline than deal with the actual problems on the ground. And for me, I just never, I never thought that was the solution. Yeah, I feel you. And, and I, I can understand that I, it's this, this concept of um, 
we talked about in this some previous episode on the podcast as well, this like sort of in-system, out-system, short-term and long-term solutions and trying to uh, embrace more sort of nuanced perspective of, of how or when we should utilize our existing systems versus how we should um, potentially try and create parallel systems. Um, because it, I mean, I, I will say for me, it feels like major change I mean, that's subjective, but let's just say major changes. Um, it would be hard to see them happen in our existing system because of the way that it's set up. However, uh, I think like we saw with Roe v. Wade, if if the people want access to you know bodily autonomy, they they got to use the existing system to make that happen right now in the short term, right? So that's I think that's an example of utilizing it in the short term. But do you recommend people... Um, from your perspective, sort of explore out system, more long-term solutions um, as, as part of where they put their energy? 100%. And I also think that you're just as impactful doing something like creating art or um, engaging in something you're passionate about to use that to make a statement on society. It's not always just, hey, let's get involved in the political system and you know just vote and put your sticker on and then that solves all the problems. Um, you know, we have to, I think, take a higher responsibility to, I think, first discover what is our gifts, what is our passion, what are, what do we care about, what makes us unique, and then contribute that gift and unpack it onto the world and persuade people instead of trying to force people to see things your way, right? And, you know, to me, that, that can happen in the system, outside of the system. I think we need everybody at, at all their, manning all their stations, right, to, to kind of bring forth this kaleidoscope to where we can actually create a world that we all envision and we all, I think, want for each other. But we're just so partitioned off into these into these tribal identities at this point in time. And our institutions have been overrun by bad actors, oligarchs, elitists, who do not have our best interests in mind. So I think first to diagnose that we have to understand that there is a problem, right? We can't just keep rowing the boat down, down the stream until we hit the waterfall and we crash. We have to understand I think the dangerous terrain we're in politically, institutionally, and then once we understand that, then we can start to solve it and problem solve and come to resolutions. But to answer your question, I think that there are so many ways to impact our world that we have to explore what is our gift, where can we actually be resonant and passionate and do something meaningful that also makes us feel good, makes us feel who we are, makes us feel like the unique individual we are. and. I think if more people are engaged in that, we'll start to see uh, some salient change on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's sort of this, this feeling, if you will, of, you know, sometimes it can feel overwhelming to think about all the things that have to change in the world and that there's got to be like one way or one solution to sort of get there that everyone has to get behind. But uh, I think similar to what you said, it's this idea that everyone's going to play their role and man their station in whatever way that that works best for them. And I think the key is 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 to not feel like the way that you believe in per se is the only way or that is the right way, but more so to to hold this like yeah, people are going to have to be playing in different ways, and that's part of us as a collective moving forward and, and doing things meaningfully. But at the same time, that this is, you know, the buttons got to be pressed in, in all different directions and all different ways. Um, and, and trusting that process that it's all part of it. Right. Um, but yeah. you know, in terms of just like sheer practicality, what I, what I find is, is sometimes 
some of the coolest, most interesting solutions that are out system, you know, rarely get a whole lot of attention because our attention is so on the existing system at hand. Um, and so do you ever like, I, I often imagine like this, this tipping point, like, is there going to come a tipping point where humanity is willing to put enough energy into some out system solutions that it's not just pure energy into the, our existing systems. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I'm, I'm often concerned when, when we, when we talk about these sorts of things that it's still too easy for people to just say, well, you know, we'll just keep using the existing systems as, as the only thing. And they don't even hear about or know about things that are happening outside of our systems that are actually really inspiring. Um, but it's because, you know, people don't want to, they don't want to divest their energy from what's, what's going on right now. So just because we don't know something's occurring doesn't mean it's not happening. And if all of our attention and focus is on hyperbole or it's on conflict or it's on political division and people are tuned into those same stations of legacy media to where, you know, they're constantly bombarded with chaos and division, where we'll start to see change is when we start to platform and bring attention to and prioritize those moments where people are doing amazing things out of the system or even in the system, but in a different and creative way. So I think this is where it's important to have the Pulse Collective Evolution, other media channels that are highlighting some of the other things that are happening in our world to where people can actually start to resonate with a different frequency, see people doing interesting things that come to the rescue of humanity and aren't always just, hey, let's, let's, Let's just watch the news for a 24 seven cycle and get inundated with all the negative negativity and bad news out there. That starts to have an impact, I think, on overall psyche and our overall spirit. So, you know, and this is the reason why you're not seeing, for example, a lot of media coverage on people coming together on something like medical freedom to where you have people who support Roe v. Wade and support bodily autonomy against vaccine mandates. Why don't you see that? Because it's, it's more profitable and it, and we're, we're so invested in the system of us versus them that seeing that kind of coalescence is not something people are used to. But as people become accustomed to that and there are more living examples of that, I think that's when we'll start to steer this tornado in a different direction. That, you know, that requires us all, I think, to take the responsibility to um, not just be good faith actors, but be invested in each other, have yeah. each other's back and more cohesion. And, you know, dare I say, have uh have an investment in the collective evolution of us all because what's the alternative the alternative is what we have today and we know it's not working yeah and you you can say that you can dare to say be invested in the collective <laughs> evolution you have you have my permission no just kidding but no but it's true it, it's like um it's a it's a really hard thing to um sort of navigate this question of how much energy do I put into something that does not yet have a lot of stakeholders and what will I lose in the existing system, the existing paradigm, if I put my energy into those other things. And I mean, companies are seeing this everywhere. If you can't, um, if you can't do something different and survive and you will, you know, by doing something different, the, the other people can dominate you very easily and you may not have a, a place in the market anymore. Um, I mean, we're going through this as a, as a media organization because we're not playing the sensationalist game. We're not playing the, um, 
you know, super polarizing headlines and, you know, all the stuff that's going on. Like I'm watching colleagues in the alternative media space do very well with just pure sensationalism. And it's interesting because it was like, it's a whole new breed of sensationalism. It's like the, the, the polarity has grown so much that it's not like what you might've called sensationalism in like 2013, 2014, it's like a whole new animal now. Right. And, uh, and you know, as a company that's saying, well, we don't want to go there. Um, it's way harder to get attention. And part of that is, is social media is literally set up algorithmically to favor that, you know, super sort of intense and polarizing content and keep people down those rabbit holes. And when you're, when you're not playing that game, it becomes a lot harder. So, you know, sometimes we'll have these internal battles of, you know, do we just need to, you know, be a little more sensationalist sometimes? Uh, do we need to be a little more extreme just so that we can sur survive more easily? So it's a really, really tough position to be really connected to your mission and your ethos enough that you weather the storm of, man, we may not get a whole lot of attention on stuff for a little while until, you know, things calm down, if they do calm down. And if they don't, gosh, we may have made the wrong bet, right? So I get that people have that difficulty. But um, I guess the question is, 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 you know, can you just stick to it and follow that heart? Can you follow what you feel um, in your industry and in your choice and whatever it might be to, to sort of exist in that level of integrity and, and then, you know, hopefully not, uh, depending on each situation, have to like go under or lose or, or not be able to, to play the game anymore. You know, it's a tough one. Right. It is a tough one. And I, I think we really need to experience a dietary change in our media. Like the, the, literally the information that is being fed to people, we have to analyze whether it's actually improving their lives, improving their mental state, improving how they feel. And I would ask everyone, when, if you watch a sensationalistic uh, piece of content, sit in your body, how do you feel after you watch that? Do you feel in harmony? Do you feel like you've just been enlightened or do you feel like you're being radicalized, right? Or you're being pushed towards, you're being pushed towards a certain persuasive ideology that maybe isn't even your own original thinking. It's just now somebody's actually taking control of your ship and ferrying you over to an ideology. Um, and because you've been you've been eating that, you've you've developed a habit. You know, it's kind of like our diet. If we're eating junk food all the time, and then you start to get turned on to more holistic ways of eating, and you start to feel good, then you start craving different foods, right? Yeah. So I. I really think it's the responsibility of media companies to feed people more holistic and better information. And also, and we've discussed this too, not to be so invested in just activism of one particular issue, but more invested in truth seeking, truth seeking across the board to where the goal is not to just pigeonhole you into one issue and have you forever fixated on that issue. It's yeah. to have a well-balanced diet in terms of the information that you're getting and that is being offered up to you. And that's why I have a great admiration for companies that resist that temptation. And, and even obviously there's a financial incentive too, to just put out that junk food out there and sensationalistic headlines because it's catching fire. And I think a, a clear indication that we're moving to towards a healthier place as media, as, as a society, as a culture is that people are starting to eat and feed off different media that is better for them, that is making them more informed, more enlightened. And I think more importantly, feeling good in their bodies, feeling like I have more joy and I have more 
affinity for people around me than I did when yeah. I was just tuning into only one lens that actually resulted in me kind of hating people, hating the other yeah. side. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is the, uh, you know, this is kind of one of the key is what is your, how is your body, what story is your body telling you about, you know, the, the nature of the stuff that you're tuning into. And then if you, if you imagine that there's this mind body connection, which there is, um, and you start thinking about how you're literally being taught to accept an enemy and somebody else who has a different, you know, narrative than you about what's going on in the world. I, I always find it fascinating because, you know, oftentimes you'll, you'll hear that, you know, Oh, especially from the alternative space, you know, the, the, the government is always trying to divide people and their divide and conquer is the way to go. But then you look at the media that those same people are producing and it's all, you know, we're the awake people and these are the sheep and these are, these people are all bad. And, and, you know, and it's the same sort of divide and conquer strategy of us versus them and, and of these in groups and out groups and this tribalistic thinking. And it's like the polarization, the insults uh, against people who think differently. And what's fascinating about all that is it's like, do you, do you not realize, you know, in a sense that you're doing the exact same thing? Um, as the people that you're apparently fighting against. And, and again, I think this goes back to why there's, there's this need for this larger cultural enlightenment as we move forward towards creating changes to so many of the things that we talk about here. Because if everything, if all of our systems, if the, a new political system, if, if people voting directly on policies, if all this were to happen, there has to be good faith sense-making at the core of it all. And then there has to be you know, the ability for ourselves to, to actually educate ourselves on a particular issue and not just vote down party lines or vote, you know, in, a, in an ideological way. And uh, so the question is, is, you know, are humans, and I'm going to say this uh, in a particular way, but it's like our, our, you know, with quotations here, like are humans ready, in a sense, for new systems? Um, or do we, do we hold the perspective? Do we hold the, if, if you want to call it, you know, intellectual and emotional and, and physiological maturity to to actually, you know, engage in a new system? That's a very good question, you know, and I think, uh, I think to answer that question, we, we'd have to first take away all the manipulation and deception going on, right? Because I think the noise and the distraction created by a lot of these institutions, institutions and these media conglomerates makes it difficult for us to actually sit with ourselves and understand if we are ready for that. Um, but I think, I think we would actually see a rapid expansion in terms of the quality of our lives and the quality of our communication and our information if we gave more platform and more attention to some of these more holistic ways of, of looking at the world and, and giving more shine and more attention to people who are committed to actually informing us, actually getting us good information, enlightening us, and putting us in the position to where more well-informed and more balanced. But, you know, in order for us to do that, we have to sort of take away some of these bad actors and replace them with something that is more abundant and vibrant and healthy for us. So I think it's hard to diagnose that without first sort of going through that detox process of our world around us. Yeah. And you're, you're suggesting, just to be clear there, that um, people choose to not tune into those quote unquote bad actors as opposed to like, you know, Google and YouTube and Facebook making that decision for us, right? 100%. Yeah. That, and that's where we have to step into our own power. It's like nobody's forcing us to click on that same video every day, right? Nobody's forcing yeah. us 
go in to go on that internet forum where all you do is argue all day long and demonize other people. I mean, we have to take some self-responsibility in this. You know, if you look at Anthony Fauci, who was retiring, he just had a press conference and I thought it was fascinating because he got a lot of softball questions. People were just asking him about his legacy and, you know, how great he was and fawning over him and this and that. But then one person asked him to comment on some of the new revelations that have come out from the origins of the pandemic and COVID and the lab leak and the funding of the Eco Health Alliance and a function research. And the press secretary literally wouldn't allow the question to be asked. It wasn't, it was not allowed. And when we're in a crisis of trust in institutions where people rightfully feel there's no transparency and people are not, particularly in this instance, public health institutions are not being open and honest with people. The only way to rebuild trust is to have that transparency, to have somebody like Fauci answer those questions directly without being able to evade them as he's done for years. And, you know, when you look at, for example, and by the way, you know, I'm, this is speaking of somebody who thinks the vaccines have done legitimate good in the world. But when you look at the bivalent vaccines and there's only 10% of people above the age of five who have even taken it, why is that? because people do not trust what they're being told and they have reason not to trust it because we now know that in some instances there was willful withholding of factual information that violated our informed consent and our ability to make an informed decision about a medical product that has a huge profit incentive behind it and it undermines public faith. So to me, the legacy of Anthony Fauci is he has presided over a pandemic where the vast amount of people in, in the United States have lost institutional faith and trust in their public health institution to where I think you'll see now moving forward, very, very low vaccination participation to where probably the only way to get people, you know, 60, 70% of people to even take a vaccine moving forward will be to mandate it, which of course we hope never happens. But yeah. that's what happens when you have a society that is, uh, built on coercion and not trust and not open dialogue and not transparency and saying, you know, we actually care about what's best for you versus we know what's best for you and do not question us. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's where the sort of the wisdom in this moment really is, is, um, you know, hopefully in a big picture perspective, uh, we're seeing the meta crises of, of the way our society is designed, the way our society is built. And the more of, you know, you could argue that, like, you know, you know, I'm, I'm not vaccinated. I didn't get vaccinated because I didn't feel that I needed it. And, um, to me, it, it just, it didn't, it didn't make sense for my situation. And, you know, that was out of very careful, you know, research and looking at it. And I, I, I hope that the, the content we've put out on the pulse over the last couple of years has been, I would, I would say pretty, I mean, we did a pretty good job, I think of, of trying to be as balanced as we could about, about the vaccine. Maybe we didn't talk enough about, um, you know, some of the dangers uh, of COVID infection. Sometimes there are some of those, but uh, I feel like we did a pretty good job of trying to do a lot of that. Um, and it, it's like, I, I think the challenge is, is you have, you have this, you have this moment where people are realizing they were, they were coerced and deceived about, you know, the nature of, of this disease and, and everything that's gone on. And you had a system you know, basically just trying to force them into doing something. And the wisdom of it all is kind of this idea that people are now seeing a lot more clearly the nature of their system. 
based on facts, meaning the facts led them to realize the nature of our system is bad. Now, sure, there are people who ha- who got, you know, really extreme positions about stuff and are believing things that are totally not true that also lost that faith, faith in the institutions. But I think the common denominator between the educated people and maybe not the people who are, who are as well educated on things is still that there's not a lot of faith and trust in the institutions and thus the institutions need to change. Um, cause I think it is extremely important that as a society, we have faith in, in st- the, the stewardship of, of a society. There needs to be stewardship to some extent and there needs to be faith in it. Um, so either way we're left where people don't have faith. Like I have no faith in the institutions and I don't hold extreme positions about the vaccine. Um, I just, I've watched people lie over and over and over. I've watched Fauci, you know, not want to tell the truth over and over and over. Um, so it's, yeah, it's this odd, odd position of how do you restore faith when those institutions don't really, like if you were in a relationship, you would, you would have to find ways to build trust again, right? If somebody did something that was, you know, really against what you guys agreed upon. And that's a tough process, right? That's, that's not easy. And and people have to come to the table ready to, on both sides, be willing to, to do that. And, And I think what you're talking about with Fauci, um, that's that's the institution saying we're not we're not coming to the table under good faith to to try and rectify the situation. Hundred percent. I mean, I think that you know when you look at the CDC, it's a perfect example of an institution that has to go through wholesale. Then, you know, the people presiding over it. But I would argue, even philosophically, their approach to um, rebuilding that trust, and that's going to take a lot of time because you ultimately you want you want to trust your public health infrastructure. You want to be like. You want to be in a position where, hey, listen, they, they're looking out for me. You know, this is, again, part of my social contract investment for them to be instituting policies and measures and creating products that have a clear benefit. And that benefit is transparent and honestly communicated. And there's no withholding of information or paternalistic um, dictating as to what you have to do. And don't worry about the details or the facts because we know what's best for you. It's not how you build trust and it's not how you operate with other adults in a way where uh, people feel like they're mutually benefiting from this relationship with our public health institution. And clearly we're not there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully this continues to be, uh, I think with this conversation, what I take away from it is, is again, this sort of necessity for people to um, be a little bit more engaged in how they see the world and and the media they're consuming and where their perspectives are coming from and questioning whether they've been caught up in narrative capture and um, wondering whether or not they, you know, how do they know that what they believe is correct? Like, how do you know? Or are you just trusting somebody else? Or, you know, sometimes we claim intuition. Well, you know, intuition can give us an insight or a gut instinct in somewhere, but it doesn't tell us every single fact. You know, how do you know that your intuition is is correct, Right. Um, and, uh, I think, I think it's important that, that we get sort of engaged and we come out of these hyperpolarized, hyperbolic fighting, fighting for our side, fighting for our ideology, you know, coming out of that. Yep. That's kind of what I'm taking away as a summary. What do you think? A hundred percent, Joe, I was just, you know, laughing because I, I have faith in us. Like, I, I feel like we we're capable of operating somewhere in between this spectrum of, you know, vaccines are. Uh, creating the biggest genocide in human history and, you know, get eight jabs of this vaccine or else. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. 
somewhere in between this space. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think we can find somewhere in the middle there. And, and, and you know, I've been, I'm so glad you said earlier this idea of just really looking at the media that you're taking in because I've been harping on this for so long. And I, I think people don't realize the effects that the media, whether it's mainstream or alternative, whatever it is, what it affects it has on people and and how you can look at current events and news and stuff that's going on in the world in a healthy way but you got to be looking at it from media personalities or media platforms whatever it might be that are actually in good faith trying to find that truth or in good faith trying to have a, a good conversation and not just this hyperbolic one-sided we're conservative media we're left media we're you know anti-vax media we're pro that whatever it is like it, it doesn't we don't actually gain anything from that and it's doing more damage than it is good um and embracing that and realizing that and choosing different media is i think a really important piece of the puzzle so I'm glad you brought that up um even though you know of course that that benefits you know what we're trying to do over here but <laughs> but but i we're doing that because we honestly truly believe in it right like i do believe that that's that's something that has to happen for sure. And that's why I always appreciate these conversations, brother, where we can explore these ideas in a way that just feels good. It feels good to, you know, to connect with somebody and explore these ideas, explore these ideas without feeling like there's this compulsion to just, you know, drift and polarize to one side of this equation and, and not be able to engage in this free flow of exchange. So appreciate you, brother. Well, that's it. That's all. I hope you enjoyed the show. As always, I want to thank the members of the Explore Lounge who are helping us to continue doing this work. If you want to support this podcast and all of the work we do here at the Pulse and Collective Evolution, consider becoming a member of our Explore Lounge. As a member, you get access to exclusive video content. You can watch all of these episodes ad-free, and you get access to our private social network where you can discuss and learn about many topics with a like-minded community of changemakers. It's truly an incredible place to be, not just for the benefits that you get, but you're directly supporting our dedicated team here at Collective Evolution and The Pulse. Visit explorelounge.one, that's dot O-N-E, to learn more.